Before we move on, there's just a few more loose ends to tie up. Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. But James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of F1 in Review, the episode, the hour and part two, where we look back at the Italian Grand Prix and also forwards to the return of the Singapore Grand Prix, which is coming up. Hello, I'm Tom Clairvon and I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt. A reminder that you can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter, as well as the F1 in Review Twitter account, where we post these episodes once they've gone out live on River Radio. And we covered large portions of the Italian Grand Prix, but one real elephant in the room we didn't cover was the red flag that never was. We got a yellow flag, didn't we? We fly all the way to lap 48. Daniel Ricciardo pulls over to the side of the track and after, well, much deliberation really from the stewards and the powers that be, a full safety car is deployed. Wow, not a virtual one like earlier. And this saw seemingly every car pit for soft tyres in the anticipation, I think all fans had this as well, that we would go racing again, but we did not. Unlike Abu Dhabi 2021, we ended under the safety car. Max Verstappen won under that very safety car. I thought it was quite a bitter ending to this Grand Prix and the weekend mm. more generally. What are your thoughts, Tristan? Well, I, I know that listeners out there might be thinking, hold on a minute, I recognise this topic. And yes, we are to some extent <laughs> rehashing uh, old topics. But, you know, can you can you blame us? We've got three weeks until um, between the end of the last Grand Prix and then the next one. Uh, so there's a little bit of a way yet to go. But we didn't have Tom's thoughts on this. And especially as now the dust has settled off the back of Monza. And we can start to reflect back with a little bit less of the tension and the hype surrounding the, the Temple of Speed, as Monza is colloquially known. I think we can look at it slightly more objectively. And uh, unfortunately, Angus can't be here with us um, this afternoon, which is a bit of a shame, really, because I know mm. he is very passionate. But luckily, he got plenty of time to voice his quite conservative opinions when it comes to Formula One. And how it should be structured. He basically, Tom stated that he didn't want anything to change. It should end up under safety car. And we should all be you know, graceful in accepting that is the way. But to mm. be honest, I think the biggest issue for me, and I said it last week, and I'll, I'll say it again just for emphasis, is that lack of clarity is causing us problems here. Abu Dhabi was an incredibly high profile case of this scenario coming up and causing problems and off the back of that we as fans were told a couple of things by the FIA firstly so things are gonna change no longer was there gonna be a a figurehead directly uh, accessible by the teams so in the 2021 season you had teams basically ringing up the then um 
race controller Michael Massey and saying to him, hey, Massey, this is wrong. You should be doing like this. And then so you'd have Christian Horner saying you should do A and then Total Wolf be ringing up and going, no, Massey, you should be doing B. What do you, what do you want about? Don't do A. And of course, that <laughs> had a massive knock on effect. And so at the end of the 2021 season, when we had this problem, I think many fans either felt like that they had been cheated because the figurehead had you know, Michael Massey had been manipulated, or they felt like a new precedent had been set with the option of the the you know the race director to basically say, "Yep, we're at near the end of the race. We better do something slightly different to make sure we end under racing conditions." In the words of Michael Massey, "We're going motor racing," um, mm-hmm. and that was quite an important i think thing for the sport because it created muddy waters but one of the biggest issues for me is the the idea that we're rushing safety and mm. i never want to see a a marshal or a crane operator or even another driver right in in formula 1 who's eager to get everything back going you know back to the green flag conditions and so they cut corners and unfortunately because of that factor i think there's a difference between calling a safety car on lap 10 versus lap 55 out of 60 Mm, because if you're a marshal you want to see racing as well so you go oh well i'll quickly run over the track here and grab that piece of carbon fiber we have seen previously marshals nearly being hit by Mm formula one drivers and formula one cars because they've done silly mistakes and equally tractors i know i'd never want to see a tractor on the track whilst there is any sort of movement on the cars because to be clear i know it doesn't look very fast on the screen but if you've ever been to a formula one race and happened to have seen a safety car being deployed like i have you'll see that the the mercedes at the front leading them or the Aston Martin at the front leading the the pack is basically on the raggedy edge of what it can perform and the cars behind them aren't. You know, the Formula 1 cars are taking it in their stride, but they're still doing well over 100 miles an hour in places. Hitting Mm. a tractor would be devastating. So, in my opinion, and this is maybe a side point, if there's ever a tractor on the track, I would actually be in favour of a red flag condition. And then all I'd ask, Tom... Is they red flag the conditions. They say, right, you're not allowed to change tires. And then once the track, once the car is gone, what they do is they bring the safety car out as and do a rolling start. Just like imagine, yes. you know, like a like the safety car has now gone in and then Max in this case and Monza would be backing up the pack like normal. But the difference is there was a red flag in the middle just so that there's no live cars with a tractor. Yeah, anyway, your thoughts, please, Tom, on this particular topic. Yeah, I think that's a good point, really, when it comes to safety and the deployment of safety cars or virtual or otherwise, because by deploying a red flag, you pour cold water on the situation and take the sting out of it, and safety comes first. It's not a question of, oh, we need to go and do this in two laps or five laps or 57 laps, because that's when the race ends. And 
I thought it was a real damp squid, really, the whole idea of ending under a safety car again. It's not one of those where I want to see artificial entertainment like I hear those who say, oh, you know, there's got to be a restart here, be it red flag or otherwise green conditions, so we end under racing conditions. But I'm one of those where if we have a condition, we have a protocol at the moment, which, to be fair, every team's agreed to, where races shouldn't necessarily be red flagged and restarted, you de-incentivise gambling and risks and opportunities being taken or otherwise because take this race for example just gone by in italy the italian strategy which was a bold gamble let's be fair was based on the fact that there was a virtual safety car at the start there's probably going to be a full safety car or another virtual safety car later on we know that at monza regardless of i suppose the lack of barriers and the fact that it's largely straight there are huge crashes there take for example hamilton and verstappen last year as being a key example about that so ferrari have taken the gamble of well we know from history this could happen again let's go and pit early and then gamble on that happening well it does happen but it happens too late for them and because that because of that they then finished second or not first or further back but meanwhile Red Bull who have taken the more conservative safe option of you know pitting later and not taking a gamble are the ones that go and win the day and that's sending out the wrong message I think really to teams when it comes to their strategy and the like because we want to go and see them do things that perhaps do work spectacularly or don't but we want to go and see them doing that knowing they will be rewarded so I I don't really get this argument that if we were to go and restart the race, it would be unfair against Verstappen. Because how it ended, it was unfair against Ferrari. So it's always going to be unfair against somebody, whatever way you slice it, really. And I think with this current protocol as well, it's one of those where... You know, we do watch this for motor racing, don't we? We do watch this to make sure there's clean, fair competition and that whoever's fastest, whoever's made the right decisions, win out the day. And I don't really think that the current protocol encourages that at all, really. We're more inspectors of, ah, oh, we've got to make sure we leave this with a warm sense of satisfaction that the race, well, it may have been dull as dishwater, but we've looked at every comma, every line, every paragraph, and it's adhered to, really. So... In my mind, I'd like to see a scenario where, similar to, to yourself, if a race is going to be ended under a safety car c- conditions because there is such a huge crash or because such a car is in a position where it's you know preventing uh, racing from getting going, they go back to a red flag conditions. I, I agree as well. I think the whole ideas of t- uh, changing tyres in those conditions is wrong as well because, I mean, they talk about cheap and free pit stops when it comes to virtual safety cars and safety cars, and that's already, or still does, should I say, cause outrage among some quartiles, namely the sort of older quartiles of the Formula 1 fan base about how it being uh, you know unfair and based more on strategy than racing. But the, the red flag conditions where you can essentially change any single part of your car is a bit like cheating in my mind. So get rid of the whole new tyres things. Everyone goes back into the garages, comes out again, rolling start, uh, and then whoever wins, wins fair and square, really. But I think we've got into a position or the regulators or the FAA, the stewards, have got into a position where they're so scared after Abu Dhabi 2021. They don't go and do something a bit unpredictable or something a bit different or a bit niche or a bit radical because they fear another backlash again but I think really unless they don't go and change this protocol and don't put in some put in place rules where you know we can end under we can end the race under some racing conditions then you're kind of self-harming the sport there I'd say I'm I'm genuinely interested about this particular facet of 
I suppose F one fandom that we've we've managed to find ourselves um, in and exploring because I noticed that the fans and and many fans are very accepting of the safety car and the way that and I'm 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 using air quotes here but you can't see them artificially <laughs> there you go I've used an expressive tone to to demonstrate my air quotes well there. artificially. <laughs> Um, impacts the sport and the particular race but those same fans and I'm, I'm pointing at Angus actually because he's an easy target and uh, explored <laughs> this with me last um, last week Angus you know, very accepting of the safety car and the way that artificially impacts the result in the sport but is in no way sort of amicable towards the idea of a red flag impacting the sport. Why do you think there is this difference in the way that the fans are are seeing these two sort of type of interventions from the FIA? That's an interesting one. I think it's more the fact that there's some drivers who are really good at starting from a grid position and there are those who are not so good or better at um, starting from a rolling start. So I guess it's one of those that when a red flag's deployed, it's almost like, you know, it's the end of a chapter, close the book type thing, we start again. It almost seems like a clean break, but a safety car in many ways, I guess, feels a bit different. And I suppose if you take away the fact that people can change tyres, change parts, practically rebuild their cars you would perhaps have more of a similarity between a safety car a virtual safety car and a red flag but it's almost like one of those i find that over the last few years particularly last year i find you know thinking back to silverstone for example where that was red flagged owing to the horrible crash to verstappen um in a condition where it was yellow flagged or there was a virtual safety car hamilton wouldn't have been able to win that race or even finish it because there was critical damage to his car However, because of the red flag rules or lack of, he could essentially rebuild his car to you know to some extent, go out again and win the race. So it's one of those where it allows sort of a free pass in the right circumstances to certain teams and drivers to finish and do better when they otherwise couldn't. But I think it's one of those we see safety cars so much more than we do red flags. Red flags are almost seen as like the nuclear option, aren't they, in many scenarios when it comes to Formula 1. Meanwhile, safety cars, oh, it's a safety car, you know, fair enough type thing. But in many ways, I think we need to normalise the red flag, not see it as sort of, you know, a taboo type thing that we should never use or, you know, it should be used in only certain circumstances. And that would be, you know, have, perhaps have a different perception or optics about that. But I guess it takes time and it takes good communication from the stewards in the FA to go and break down that stigma which I mean we said about this towards the start of the season I believe before we even kicked off that the comms from the FAA had to be good had to be better now that this communication between the garages and them were were stopped in terms of mid-race but they haven't really done that they've just cut off one channel and said right you can't talk to us in the middle of the race i get that i understand that but then when it comes to why decisions are made take the starting grid for example this weekend we didn't find out until you know 10 hours or less before the race even yeah. started you had various other drivers saying hi i'd like to know where i'm actually going to be lining up in a few hours time so 
really sort of missed a trick there, I think, when it comes to sort of bettering themselves. And this is why so many questions, I, st I think, still remain of them, is because they seem to be making the same mistakes and just not letting people know why they've made decisions in a timely fashion without you know, going to sending off a few paragraphs or a press release saying, we made this decision for X, Y, and Z reason. Deal with it. Tati bye. We'll see you in Singapore. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's very true. Uh, maybe we need to introduce a new flag into into Formula One, the timeout flag. I'll even name it for them. The You can call it the Timex timeout take a break sponsored by <laughs> KitKat flag, um, which they, <laughs> they, they can wave down and, and everyone goes, OK, fair enough. And it, it's bizarre to me that in, in many sports that we have breaks and there are, you know, you have stoppage play in football. Mm -hmm. And you have stoppage in, in rugby. You have golf, which just kind of never starts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we, you know, we, in many other sports, we normalise the idea of being like, hold on a minute, we need to check out what's going on here. Stop everything. Imagine in football, if like someone had, uh, you know, hurt themselves or, or damaged their knee. And everyone was like, ah, no, let's just keep, mm. just keep playing. You know, bring out the safety ball instead. It just doesn't, you know, <laughs> kick as, as far or something like that. And then we'd all, you know, raise questions over, over it. And I, I think it is a bit weird that in a sport which is incredibly dangerous, in which, you know, speeds of 180 plus mile an hour are reached on a regular basis and nearly every track, um, that we're like, nope. Just keep going. Just keep going. Mm. Send, keep sending them around. And the other thing is it takes ages as well. It irks me that we have these massive crashes with debris everywhere and they don't red flag it. And so what they do is they have to bunch the pack up and then there's a good like couple of minute window where they the marshals can't get on track to like pick up the debris and stuff. And so, you know, it takes ages for them to deploy. And the other thing, Tom, is I, I think annoying, the other thing about Monza was as soon as Ricardo stopped, I think um, our you know particular group chat lit up immediately mm. with the with the words safety graphs come out, yeah. and they spent ages mulling it over, and I think this feeds into the problem, which is it seems like the FIA still are taking ages to make the decisions, and mm. the communication isn't is still not really there, and it's such a shame that we don't have you know huge amounts of time to talk about Monza as itself over the course of the weekend, not just in Formula One. <laughs> Because, mm. you know, I do actually follow the Formula 2 and the Formula 3. And the Formula 2 was an absolute mess in its own regard. We had penalties being hit out left, right and centre. Basically, the top of the full half the grid ended up with penalties of some sort. It was an absolute disaster. And some weird cool, you know, rules by the FIA as well. Honestly, that was an absolute mess of, of a of a race um, in, in, in Formula 2. And, and so this, this problem of the FIA's stewarding skills i think you know transcends the 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 uh the different categories within the sport um which i guess is okay you know at least they're mm. consistently mediocre but i think then it would be really useful as i say to get some some more clarity on this and just either put it to rest or say yep we're gonna make changes because i mean it's not just me I mean, angus highlighted that martin brundle keeps highlighting that you know when tractors are on track that they should red flag so clearly this is a problem that's sort of overarching and i don't know i think if you are one of these people sitting there thinking yes i'm accepting safety cars and virtual safety cars but no i'm not accepting red flags i think 
perhaps you're in denial about whether or not hmm. you're you you think there should be any intervention from the FIA because personally I bundle them in to to all in one as an intervention from the the stewards so I'd be interested to hear what you think although saying that if you're if you're saying like Twitter maybe I don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But while there are plenty of negatives to come out of the Italian Grand Prix, there was one shining positive. Nick de Vries made his F1 debut at this Grand Prix in a Williams car. He was standing in or sitting in for Alex Albon, who was having appendix surgery. And thanks to all the penalties, he qualified in P8. But I think all of us thought, you know, you know you're starting quite high. Congratulations, big day out, etc. But would he be able to hold it? And hold it, he did. He went down to P9, beating Ocon, Bottas, the two Hasses, to name but a few and points on his first ever F1 Grand Prix his first ever race means he joins those of Magnussen, Stoffel van Dorn, Joe, uh, Buemi as well those who have scored points on their first ever outing in a car now Williams are yet to finalise who's going to partner Alex Albon for the next season Tristan does this display by the Dutchman convince you that he's worthy of replacing Latifi or is he perhaps having to go somewhere else I think, it, it, as I said uh, last week, um, very, very briefly on the, on the subject when De Vries came up, this was a very honest first attempt in Formula One because the <laughs> poor Nick had woken up on Saturday morning expecting to be you know, doing a little bit of the, the camera work, doing a bit of maybe commentating, you know, feeding in here and there. And unfortunately, with Alex Albon uh, having to go in for some uh, surgery, he was unceremoniously thrown into Williams and into the car. And I, I can't stress this enough, how different that experience would be if you had time to prepare versus if, if it's off the cuff. Because... Everything is wrong when you jump into a Formula One car for the first time. Your braking distances are wrong. Acceleration is wrong. G-forces are wrong. The The setup and the seat is wrong. And everything about it will be different. Bear in mind, in 2017-2019, he was in Formula Two. And, you know, he's he's been working as well for the Formula, um, Formula E team in uh, the 2019 season. And that, that kind of... Sport is very different, very, very different to to Formula One. So he got thrown in at a deep end of the swimming pool with Williams, a team which many of us don't expect a huge amount from, and yet came out ninth, beat Latifi. And I said this last week that that, um, Nick DeVries had actually disadvantage against Latifi because if you actually look how many places gained um that Latifi had versus De Vries versus um between Saturday's qualifying and Sunday's race you'll see that Latifi actually gained an an extra place over De Vries so that actually mitigated to some extent the true qualifying difference that they they had between each other and yet De Vries was able to fend off Latifi and <laughs> other established Formula 1 drivers and get to the end of the race and score you know score points ninth on his first on his debut in Formula 1 everyone was going over to him and giving him you know big hugs afterwards Max Verstappen came over and gave him a massive hug Toto Wolff this week 
said that he would be surprised if Nick DeVries didn't get a seat. And of course he's going to say that because DeVries is part of the the uh, Mercedes sort of driver program. And, and before that he was part of the McLaren Young Driver program as well. Very much baked into the Mercedes side of the um, of the paddock there. But personally... I think it's time to drop Latifi, even if he brings Lavatha coffee and Safina foods and, and, you know, his dad, who's worth a couple of billion, you know, and change. I think it's time to drop <laughs> Latifi and time for Williams to, you know, to accept that they've got to have two drivers that can be pulling in the points. Because at the end of the day, Latifi's going to get bored and going to run away. OK, at some point he's going to want to go do something else. And then they're stuck. So I think it's time to say to Latifi, thank you very much for your cash. I hope you've had fun. Off you go. Bring in Nick. Get more points. Get those, you know, those extra points to get seventh versus tenth, for example, is a few hundred million dollars worth of of um, prize money game. And that's a lot of money. You know, that's bordering on what Latifi might be throwing at this. So never underestimate the value of a good driver. You know, it, it, some teams are like, well, we've got our, our good driver and we've got our rich driver. And <laughs> the good driver keeps the rich driver in check. And that's okay. You know, the, the strolls can be pleased with that. But it, a, a proper team needs a good driver and another good driver that push them forward. It's like competition in business. You've got to have competition because otherwise it all stagnates and doesn't push the team forward. You know, drivers keep each other in check as well as they do the other drivers on the field. So mm-hmm. I think it's time for Latifi to go. And I think the, the Nick DeVries did a fantastic job bringing home the points. And, you know, if he, as I say, I'm going to paraphrase Toto Wolf and uh, adopt the quote myself. If Nick DeVries isn't in the sport next year, I will be very surprised. Mm. And I would also be surprised, to be fair, and I was equally surprised by the fact that he finished P9 in a Williams. I mean, I don't expect much from a Williams car, both their drivers as well for that matter, really. Of course, I expect more from Albon than I do Latifi, but I don't expect them to be vying for points after a few races. And I especially don't expect a Williams to be vying for points after they've literally been chucked into the car after one of their drivers is having surgery. So I think that really does highlight the talent of Nick DeVries. He's always been one of these people I've seen in and around Formula 1, standing next to Toto Wolf most weekends, chatting to him, going, yeah, yeah, I should do this, do that. I was like, who is this guy? What, what, what is he doing there? He looks too young to be part of the sort of, I suppose, engineering backstaff. And I remember about a year or so ago when there was also discussions about the Williams seat, I think the Aston Martin seat as well. Liv, for our older listeners, I remember her saying, oh yeah, I believe Nick DeVries should get this. And I was going, who on earth is this Nick DeVries fella? And now I see why there's so much hype surrounding him, why he's so ingrained into the Mercedes team, why he's in Formula E, because to do what he did is quite remarkable, really. And for him not to go and get a seat next season would be, quite frankly, crazy. In addition to the conversations that apparently have happened between Williams and him, there's also been, and it's been confirmed by Nick himself, conversations with him and Helmut Marko, the idea being, no, he's not going to Red Bull, that he would potentially go to Alpha Tauri, replace either of the drivers there, because Gasly's future is very much in the air, as is Sonoda's for that matter. So we could see him have to 
fully break away from the Mercedes team, fully go away from the right hand uh, shoulder, I guess, of Toto Wolff and join what they dub as the dark side of the paddock of Formula One. But, but either way you slice it, he deserves a chance in Formula One. I think the fact that his debut has come at the age of 27 highlights you know, one thing quite clearly, and that's simply that money is so, so, so important when it comes to Formula One because. If it was based on talent alone, he would definitely have got that debut far earlier than before. Yes, he's been reserve driver for Aston Martin and for various other Mercedes teams prior, but that's nothing compared to actually being you know, one of the two men that has to go and get the points or qualify highly, and he's really put himself forwards there. And on the Latifi point of him replacing him, Absolutely, I think he should. I think Latifi has spent far too long in the sport, really. We gave him a chance. There was very, very small, tiny embers of him doing quite well and improving, but he just frankly hasn't. But I think Williams' decision to dump Latifi and to bring in Nick DeVries or somebody who doesn't bring in so much cash will really sort of highlight, A, what Williams want to do moving forwards, or what Dorilton Capital want to do moving forwards? Do they want to be in Formula One just to be in Formula One and are quite happy to often have the wooden spoon and compete for ninth place, or do they want to go and progress further up the grid? And I think as well, their selection in terms of the partner of Alex Albon will also show how their finances are doing because if they're still having to go and rely on someone like Latifi or someone who has really deep pockets over someone who has talent, that shows you that perhaps the older problems of the Williams team before they were brought by the New York uh, company are still very much there. But if you want to go and show the world how good you are, I can't think of a better example of what Nick DeVries has done there. But um, it remains to be seen where he'll go, if he'll go anywhere. But um, Claudette's turn, really. I'm quite frankly remarkable. Yeah, and it's nice, I think, for us to be citing quality drivers that that could potentially get into the sport and there is a lot of controversy at the moment surrounding you know potential drivers um that might be entering into formula one or nor might not be and we'll be coming onto that uh, shortly actually but i think it's important that these these tests occur where a driver is given long race testing and we have very like short form testing i think is how i describe it and uh this will make more sense i think as i explain what i mean and what i mean by that is we 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 take a driver and, and the fia mandates that all teams must test twice a year uh either one driver or two drivers it's kind of up to them but they have to test twice a year and they have to give up one of the seats in in like a pre-practice session. So you might well have someone like Mercedes running driver A, and then later on in the year running driver B. They've fulfilled their ob- um, obligation through driving two different drivers. Or you might have Williams drive and who to test driver C twice. Same thing. That that also fulfills their obligation. But the, it doesn't really give them anything it doesn't give them anything at all really apart from their experience driving a formula one car and and, and you know, tick boxing but if you said to them right so how prepared are you for formula one and and to race then i don't think it's particularly brilliant and i would love a wild card system tom where every team is told right we're gonna have 24 races next year 
which is a lot of races, um, each seat, each of your seats has to be passed to an up and coming driver for one race. So all drivers would be on an even playing field because all drivers would drive 23 races. Um, and you might well be like, well, then, you know, everyone might swap out uh, you know, their, their driver for Hungary, in which case, yeah, everyone might. They probably won't, but they could. And so it would give you a really interesting dynamic because not only would it allow the, the number one and number two drivers within a, a team to have a break, um, but also means that it gives the opportunity for if, the, if let's say, number two driver is worse than number one driver, well, now they're up against a rookie and now they get to test themselves like that and vice versa. You know, if you're Max Verstappen and you get beaten by the person Red Bull chucked in your seat, in, in, sorry, in, in Perez's seat, then what's that say? So I think it had a really fun dynamic. But look, we're, at the end of the day, we're going to have a really long season. And it would be really good if we had these long-form tests. And this is what I mean by long-form tests. Not just a session, but I mean a session into qualifying to a race. And that would be fantastic. And I can just I could just hear all of the traditionalists in Formula 1 yelling at me. You know, through, um, through their, um, their, well, whatever they're listening to this podcast uh, on. But to be honest, I think it'd be a fantastic addition. I don't know what you think. Oh, yeah, I like the idea. I mean, it's one of those you have all these different teams having their academies and then the members of the academies often go off to different academies or go elsewhere because basically the pipeline is so chock-a-block. It's so stagnated, full of talent, and the talent's not getting an opportunity to fully go and exert itself, really. I mean, take George Russell, for example. He had to be very, 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 very patient to get himself into that Mercedes seat. And yes, it's all going rosy for him right now, but there could have been an alternative universe where he got to, let's say, the end of season two with Williams and thought, right, had enough. I'm not getting high up the, the the leaderboard in terms of the constructors, in terms of a better team. I'm going to go somewhere completely different. So, you know, what is the point of an academy unless you're going to be using these drivers? And I say using in terms of actually using them to go and get some points on the board, to get you high up uh, the constructors' table, and ultimately, you know, to go and get yourself some more points, i.e. cash as well, really, because it's fine to go and have... Re- you know, um, reserve sessions here or sessions there or this sort of the other but as you said it doesn't really prepare you for what's to come when it comes to driving Formula 1 uh, driving a Formula 1 car but as you hinted at earlier we often see a scenario where when a rookie comes in and does better than the other that often is a sliding doors movement for the more permanent driver I mean to use George Russell as an example again we go back to Bahrain, for example, the Sakir Grand Prix, where he completely blitzed Bottas. And uh, if it wasn't for a few issues, he would have convincingly beat him. I think we're all in agreement there when it comes to to, to that race. And Bottas was gone because Russell had shown his quality. It remains to be seen whether Nick De Vries will do the same to Latifi. But I suppose from a driver's perspective, that's why you don't want to do it because... It makes you a bit more vulnerable and I suppose there's a lot of pride in it as well. But for the fans and for the spectators and for the fact we've now got, you know, a blockbuster 24 race season, a lot of racing going round, it would be a good opportunity to go and sort of bleed in, bed in, um, seeing younger talent and really show them or really, you know, sort of show the teams as well if they're up to the metal because if they can't go and really show their quality in a race uh, but are brilliant in let's say testing sessions then which one would you prefer i know which one i prefer but there we go 
And as we hinted at there, there's going to be a record 24 race calendar that being confirmed by F1's governing body on Tuesday. That's when we're recording for the upcoming 2023 season. That's going to see the new race in uh, Las Vegas. That's going to see the return of Qatar and China as well. That's been away for three years. And it's okay, really, if you can believe that. It's going to be the longest season ever. But with all the people, all the tracks that have come in, there are, of course, losses. There's the French Grand Prix that's going to be falling off the calendar. And it'll be beginning with Bahrain on the 5th of March and then ending at Abu Dhabi on the 26th of November. Monaco and the Spa Grand Prix in Belgium also retain their places. Monaco until 2025, but Spa only one more year has been added for that Grand Prix for that circuit. Tristan, what's your thoughts on this calendar we're seeing here? The longest ever. We've got some new additions, some old faces and some falling off. Your thoughts on what we've got so far? I'm not sure. Like, I... Don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a bit of a fan of the sport, but 24 races is a lot of races. As a, you know, just looking at it, right, it's going to kick off on the 5th of March. So, uh, given that winter testing will be sort of the, I'm going to, I'm going to hazard a guess here, around the week of the, sort of the 10th-ish of February, 10th to 15th of February, maybe. Or maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's sort of like the 18th. I'm going to go with the 18th. Like 18th to 19th of February is when I'm going to guess like testing could be. But then saying that, that's if they do two lots of testing, of course. They might not. So, yeah. So, maybe maybe it could be like the weekend of the 10th and then the weekend of the 24th of February if they do two lots of testing. <laughs> so, we're, we're not talking about a, a, a long winter break here. We, we, you know, when we finish this year in December... It's only going to be a couple of months. And that's it's not going to be long till we're, we're kicking off back again. And you know, I don't I don't think it's healthy for the sport to have this many races, especially when we are jetting around. I say we are jetting around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish, especially when we're virtually jetting around the world and it's it's annoying, Tom, that they yet again haven't bundled everything together. Like, if if yeah. I may, sixteenth of April, China; thirtieth of April, Azerbaijan; seventh of May, Miami; twenty first of May, going back to Italy for the first of the uh, the two Italian Grand Prix. So, you know, we're going to China, Azerbaijan, USA, and then back to Italy. Mm. Oh, oh, come on, that's that's three continents there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's necessary. We could have they could have bundled things together, and the, you know when we're talking about the additions, you know that they're fine. But I'm I'm genuinely worried about Belgium. And one of the things I noticed as well, Tom, is they've they've moved the the summer break. So this is something I just sort of glanced at it and I was like, hold on a minute, that doesn't look right. We have um we have the Belgium, and then we've got sort of. A, a, a solid break between um, Belgium and the Netherlands. So we got 30th of July, Belgium, and then um, 27th of August, the Netherlands. So they've clearly they've they've moved Belgium to before the summer break, which I I feel like is a bit of a shame because personally I really like Belgium after the summer break because I like looking forward to Belgium because the Spa is one of my favorite tracks, and I'm genuinely worried about its longevity. I feel like they uh, the FIA are 
are honing in on an alternative for it and i'm going to be very very sad if that happens but to be honest i just think it's so long and again i don't know why they're not bundling the continents together or or at least trying to because i get that different different um venues have have time constraints but it's absolutely ridiculous the amount we're doing jetting around especially when the the f f1 is advertisement is peddling this idea of sustainability you know there's no point having fancy slogans if it doesn't hold up to actions you can't just you know greenwash and hope that everyone's going to ignore the the other environmental impacts and yes i know it's a dirty sport it will always be one but it doesn't mean we can't make improvements right <laughs> you know mm. I'm like well i know we're burning x amount of fuel but hey what's another hundred thousand liters you know it doesn't work like that you know every little does help and yes if we're going to be a dirty spot at least try and clean it when we can but so yep. my takeaway is it's it's too long at the moment and it does end on my birthday though so that's always <laughs> nice uh, i always look forward to a race on my birthday so yeah unfortunately that will be abby dabby that's some i noticed that's something they haven't mm. changed tom hey eh? mm. abby dabby why, eh? but yeah it'll be an interesting end to the season um having las vegas then abby dabby um uh, i but i just wonder i wonder whether or not this is only going to be a one or two year thing where we have 24 races before they pull back a bit mm. yeah i can only really echo your comments so far tristan really i suppose positives will get those out of the way so to speak it's nice to have china back i do like the uh grand prix they have there i partly thought to myself would we ever see another chinese grand prix in the near future owing to the chinese government's policy when it comes to covid and how stringent they are shall we say on um infections there and preventing them but nice to see that back but then on the other sort of side of the coin did Qatar really need to come back? Was anyone really missing Qatar versus Hockenheim, for example? Not really. I think it's quite clear why Qatar is on this calendar, really. Yes, it qualifies as being good enough for Formula 1, and yes, it has other motorsport there, and that's fantastic, but it's not one of these tracks that needs to be on there because of its exciting racing. It's on there because, obviously, the people that own that respective circuit have a lot of money to go and pay Formula 1 and the governing body and all the sponsors, so... It's just a bit annoying, really. And once again, as you say, with the sort of the number of times we're jetting around all over the place, we've got a US Grand Prix in May. Oh, don't worry, we've got another US Grand Prix in October. Oh, and don't worry, we've got another one in November. I mean, trying to at least make it regional based in terms of, let's say, we have the Middle Eastern section, the Southern European section, the North European section, the North American section trying to link it would go a long way i think really but i am equally concerned as well as you say there about belgium because i always felt the belgium was on its own little sort of um podium almost it had that sort of positions being the grand prix the circuit where everything got back going again and we got racing again but now taking that away and replacing it with zandvoort makes you think well as long as Verstappen is flying high in the sport and he's still fairly young and I doubt he's going to do a Nico Rosberg and go off into the sunset after winning X amount of world championships, that's always going to be there because it attracts so many people and of course it's very visually appealing in terms of the amount of orange there as well. So it's almost like they're trying to phase out slowly but surely Belgium and I wouldn't be surprised if come 2027 or 8 we just have an announcement of, oh, you know, Spa's no longer on the calendar because they were being awkward, 
we don't need them anyway. We've got 57 other Grand Prix to go to, so, you know, well, they're lost, am I right, folks? But, yeah, I mean, Las Vegas as well, that was uninspiring to say the very best. And we're getting a lot of circuits on here, and more isn't always more. I'd much rather have a smaller, slimmed-down calendar of let's say half for argument's sake circuits here but at least let them be quality ones where we know there's going to be good taxing racing in terms of on the drivers in terms of on strategy in terms of even on engines for that for, for that matter but um, we're not really seeing that and to put the cherry on top of this disappointing cake monaco has retained its place for a number of seasons <laughs> i can imagine many people thinking that's a that's a very good thing there but you know notice that oh, we, yes. we, we didn't get told we didn't get told how many sprint races there would be so when it was good announced point. last year they said that half i want to say half we're going to be sprint races mm-hmm. and then that that kind of quickly uh dropped down three <laughs> which is a little bit different <laughs> uh, tom how many spring races do you think we're going to get next year Ooh, i think we've got 24 i would be in the words of toto wolf i would be surprised <laughs> if there weren't 10 what do you say i think we're going to get six, six. So I reckon, mm. yes that'd be a quarter yeah um, and I think some of them will matter much more than others. So my suspicion is they'll do sort of sprint races um, at, at Australia. I think we might get one at Spain, maybe United Kingdom. Um, and then I can see another one maybe at uh, Hungary. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, I did kind of like also the uh, the Austria one. So maybe we'll get Austria and then we'll have the last ones will be like Brazil um, much later on um, at the end of the season. So I reckon they'll they'll distribute them out. But I could see them having um, sort of six because at the end of the day, the, the sprint races are independently sponsored um, by, I think, crypto. Um, I try, I try, sorry, my mind's flashing back to Emperor Max being paraded around at the British Grand Prix um, with a wreath around his neck and the silly medals. So uh, looking forward to <laughs> looking forward to that, um, that sort of thing. They need to bring back the robots as well. I've noticed they haven't brought back those. Um, apologies if you don't get that reference. When the when the the pandemic hit in 2020 and we finally got going again with racing. The, uh, the FIA decided they were going to be new and innovative on delivering the trophies to the drivers. So they had them all line up in, in a, a metre or two metres apart in a line. And then they had an FIA representative put the trophy on a little robot. And then they drove the little robot over to them. And then they, they uh, the drivers then got them. And it was really sweet. And I really liked the robots. And they should bring them back because it was funny. Um, so... But yeah, I I agree. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think we're heading towards the like the you know they're subtly dropping hints that old and traditional tracks, tracks that we love and aren't just made by Tilka. And don't get me wrong, some Tilka tracks are good. I do like China, for example, although some people don't like it. Um, you know those those tracks are maybe going away, which is sad because I will be very very sad the day we lose um, Spa. I've never been, and I've always wanted to. So, you know, if they do, I might actually just have to go and, and enjoy the last race if I can. But Silverstone, as well, I see on the list of, as as a track that might not last, you know. They, they've had those problems there. And 
combined with sprint races as well, I could see a, a sort of a new era of, of, of F1 racing where they want tracks that could be good for sprints and be good for, for bringing in money. And unfortunately, the uh, Arab states and the oil states, you know, do that much better yeah. than places like Belgium, places like France, which just got the axe, Britain. Mm. You know, these tracks aren't the ones that bring in all the, all the money. Um, although there's there's more controversy around the the Silverstone ticket selling, I don't know if you saw that, Tom. They they were putting up the prices basically by the minute. Yes, yes. And then they were like, "Oh, we paused it because uh, it's a mistake." No, no, they didn't. <laughs> what they did, what they actually mean is, um, we paused it because we've made a mistake. We realised that you're all noticing. So yeah, we got caught. Sorry, yeah, not so meant to have happened. <laughs> if you have managed to get your tickets for the Silverstone Grand Prix, that's that's excellent, and I I truly hope you you paid a fair price because I'm really disappointed to see that. And we now take a step down to F2 to talk about the winner of F2, Felipe Drogovic, who has won himself the championship but finds himself without a seat moving forwards, be that in Formula 1 or be that in Formula 2. And there's also so many seats up for grabs in terms of Formula 1, as we've hinted at earlier. And there's also discussions about Colton Herter coming into Alpha Tauri. Now, for those who don't know the man, he is not a Formula 1 driver. And owing to the fact that he is racing an Indian car he is without the current required amount of super license points which means unless they change the rules he cannot race in a formula one team whether he likes it whether the team likes it whether anybody likes it at all he's not able to race this got us thinking i have to go and uh, credits to tristan on this one in terms of thinking how should a driver be allowed into formula one should they be allowed based on whether they come through solely the formulas formula two formula three or should there be other avenues into the sport be it the w series be it indycar uh, be it other sort of i suppose motor racing that's outside of the formulas do you think tristan that the current route into formula one is quite monosyllabic quite sort of one directional there's only one routine should that change in your view or stairs it is Mm. Look, to be honest, I think the the idea is very good, the super license points, um, and the way it's structured means that the idea is you're supposed to get talent. Now, this this topic kind of comes in, in twofold and uh, with two kind of issues that are linked together, and one of them, Tom, as you say, is, is um, Drogovic and is and he's he's one f two, brilliant, great. Uh, but he's basically said that he should be allowed to return to, to F2 if there are no F1 seats. And I do kind of see where he's coming from because it, it must be very disheartening to, to win F2 and then rise above all other young drivers. And then you look up and then uh, there's nothing there. <laughs> um, it's a bit like entering the world of work after university. I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it's not. Um, but that's the thing. And, and but the the the, uh, the counter to that is then what though? Do you, you know, you either go back into the sport and you win F two again, and you reprove yourself, or you lose. Mm. At which point, you you've kind of accidentally shot yourself in the foot. And so there is this nasty surprise waiting for many F two drivers, where they finish F. Uh, F2 hoping to get into F1 and there's no seats available and part of this problem is that there's not high enough turnover of Formula 1 drivers with people like Alonso and you know, another, another example is Kimi Raikkonen 
taking these seats away and, and hoarding them. Alonso's been bouncing between teams and is set to stay on longer. Then you've got the money drivers, the pay-to-drivers, also taking seats. And Aston Martin's one seat down. And then you've got Alonso there now, so he's not going to move. You've got Latifi. You know, that's another seat gone. You had Mazepin at Haas. So, like, I, I do get where he's coming from. Um, and then, but the the other thing about getting into Formula 1, Tom, is you also have to get enough super license points. So, for F2 drivers, if they win F2, that's brilliant. And they do actually then have enough uh, super license points to get into Formula 1. But then, let's say they wanted to go off and, and, and do something else. But what's weird is the FIA don't look at the different uh, sports equally which is a bit which I find a bit bizarre so if you come in second in IndyCar you get 30 points as opposed to 40 for Formula 2 so you have to win IndyCar if you want to get the 40 points you can come third in Formula 2 for you to get the same amount of points the W series it by the way is worth 15 points so this series that Formula 1 and the FIA have have cited as being this incredible thing that was going to help catapult female drivers and women drivers into F1. It's worth 15 points. It's not worth any... And, and, and that's another topic that I'd like to cover actually soon about how they're, they're not taking advantage of the W Series like I'd want them to because it's, it's down to people like Alpine now pushing these drivers, these excellent female drivers into the sport. I don't think it's right that these that these points don't match up properly. So I think they need to take IndyCar more seriously. I think they need to take like the W Series more more seriously, because to me, I I find it a little bit weird that, for example, you could win IndyCar and get fifteen points, but if you won Formula Three, you get thirty points. Well, how does that mm. correlate? W Series is kind of supposed to be a bit like Formula Three, but it's not they don't take mm. it seriously which i find very disappointing so we i don't you know we, so with herter for example he wants to get into the sport called herter and he said he doesn't want to be exception um but the thing is though he's he's been doing very well in indycar and this is where this has come from he's done very well in indycar and he hasn't got enough points he's going to be he's going to be down points so we've got Drogovic, who is an f2 uh, driver who's got 40 points and can't get into the sport and then we've got Herter, who's got 32 out of the 40 points he needs. Um, but he's, you know, he's, he's won seven wins in his first four, season, four seasons at IndyCar and finished third and fifth in 2020 um, at, in the 2020 and 21 championship. So it's clearly a good driver, but can't get into the sport. So yeah, they need to shake it up a bit because otherwise we're going to have a, a, a problem in progression into Formula 1. I have to agree, it's a very sort of purist way, isn't it, of getting them into Formula 1, you know, you do your Formula 3, then your Formula 2, then your Formula 1, but not right in my view when there's talent that lies outside of the system, it's not one of those, it's almost like with Red Bull of all, where they go, no, I'm afraid there's lovely drivers outside of our academy, but we're only going to plough forward with Daniel Kvyat, because he's part of our academy, and that's how we work, and it just, you know, you've got such talent outside of that which you're just blind to because you've got to go through your channels and as you're saying there there's those examples there Colton Herter which you mentioned there we can look at Pato Award for example who was heavily linked to replacing Daniel Ricciardo for the upcoming season next season uh, of Formula 1 but we see that Oscar Piastri has got that seat and 
the cynic in me says if he wasn't racing in the IndyCar series, if he'd come through the F2 and F3 systems, he would perhaps have had a better chance of getting that seat. You need to look back further, for example, Michael Schumacher, you know, seven-time world champion Michael Schumacher, he didn't come through the formulas, Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula anything. He was racing through the 90s and the sort of early 1980s and completely different things, you know, not going through the traditional systems, if you will, and then went on to go and romp home with so many race wins so yes that's going back but it's wrong I think for the system to be almost like well you've got to do it our way you've got to do it the way we want you to go and do it type thing or otherwise you're not allowed into the club because Formula 1 is meant to be about promoting the best drivers meant to be about giving them the best chance and the best equipment and seeing who the best driver is in my view that's the whole reason the sport is coming to being and why it's flourishing so much it's the best people with the best technology with the best people in the garages and in the paddocks creating the best technology for them to go and race around and it's about innovation it's about competition and competition winning out and without bringing it back to the whole safety car conversation the current system doesn't allow it to be that way at the moment it hinders it it puts almost uh, sanctions on itself really so i think realistically speaking there should be a relook at this current system we have here i don't think there should be a complete breaking down that being said of the formulas and the formula three and the formula two and the importance of that but it shouldn't be one of those where we see somebody else coming in outside of the traditional route and we go no you're not allowed to go and do it please go through the main entrance and the main exit when you leave otherwise you're not allowed really but you live in hope that it changes but i think it'll take some time no, exactly, Tom. I, I completely agree. And I think this is definitely something that we should revisit next week once we got Angus back with us as well. Maybe um, we, can, we can talk about in depth about the way that, that Formula um, 2 and 3 are structured to get them you know, up through the sport um, from Formula 3, Formula 2. Bear in mind, you pay for Formula 3 and Formula 2. So mm. that's another thing to add to, to Djokovic's um, comments is, is he would be effectively paying for himself to, to potentially lose a season or win one um so you know it's not something that's particularly easy and you do definitely have to be wealthy to do it and he, you know he's lucky that he, he wants to go back and do it again but i do think after all the time and all the money and, and you know, shipping yourself around the world and hoping that you are uh, you place yourself in the position that there should be something there and it, it, it's frustrating that we don't have um a more concrete outcome for Formula 2. I, and I know that we would love to say, well, there's always a seat. You know, F1 <laughs> is partnered with F1's own racing team um, and and the winner of F2 gets the seat. But unfortunately, it can never work like that. But I think what would help is if other... And this goes back to the points thing. I think it would help if other racing categories were worth and valued as much so yes there might not be a formula one seat yet but your name's on there ready to go if you want to get into formula one but then you can go do indycar knowing that you don't have to you know have to win it to get enough points you can you can come in in slightly lower places because that's like saying well after you finish formula two you should win formula one it's not going to happen that's why it's ridiculous to me so I think they could go some way to help themselves a bit by improving the points and making sure that other other categories of motorsport are equally appealing to these young drivers. 
And it seems that's all we got time for in terms of episode 30 of F1M Review. Thank you very much, dear listener, for listening all the way to the end of this episode. Be that live or via the listen back feature on River Radio or via your preferred podcast provider. You know all the ones I'm talking about. A reminder, you can follow myself, Tristan, and F1M Review on Twitter. The F1M Review account is all like that. No hyphens, no underscores, just F1M Review, capital F. Uh, the next Grand Prix is in Singapore. That returns, but that's not this weekend coming. If you're listening on the week commencing the 19th, that's going to be the week after. But no doubt, there'll be lots of us to talk about when it comes to the next episode, episode 31 of F1M Review. No doubt, there'll be some more news, topics, interesting things for us to sink our teeth into and to rabble on about. But thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.